G'day and welcome to the Drive Able podcast where we discuss all things about driving and safer community transport for people with disabilities and medical conditions. If you haven't done so yet, make sure that you go back and subscribe to our channel and follow us on our socials. Just search for Drive Able podcast and it'll come up with heaps of content and interviews that we've done so far. Uh, Go back and listen to some of those older episodes follow our channel press the like button smash the subscribe button and make sure that you tune in every week to our podcast um if you've got a story to tell about driving or transport or you know somebody that has a story to tell make sure you uh, get in touch with us hit us up with a comment on our social pages and we'll make sure that we get back to you ali how are you today hey brad yes i'm great and uh yeah we have another wonderful interview here uh, today we have Amin Akbarian back again uh, for another interview. Um, you might remember Amin is Australia's representative on the International Standards Committees for Assistive Technology Products. Um, basically, this is a very important role because the Australian standards are like a copy of the um, international ones. And Amin basically makes sure that our voices and requirements are heard on that international standard and on that international scale. Uh, so his role is really important. Um, once COVID and all that dies down, um, it, it is a fairly international role. He'll be travelling overseas and um, contributing to those meetings overseas. After the last, last time we got Amin out, we gave, uh, well, at the last time we got Amin out, we gave an overview of all the standards. And now basically we've got him back to talk specifically about each standard. So what we're going to do is go through um, an episode on each one or maybe a part A and part B. We'll explain it as we go along. There's quite a few standards and um, I guess it's, it, it can get quite in depth. So we're gonna leave it fairly flexible. Um, we're gonna cut it up in a way that people can understand um, and, and we'll just keep going there like that. Yeah, so just to help highlight before we get into it, there's four main standards. There's um, one to be able to get in and out of the, the vehicle with ramps and hoists and lifters. There's one about the actual standards of the wheelchair, of when that's actually in the vehicle. So what standards does the wheelchair actually have to be if you're going to be sitting into that? And then there's another standard about how to actually tie that down and restrain it. And then there's another important standard about driving with hand control. So things that impact on steering or the pedal control uh, or other secondary functions in the car. So they're the four main standards that we're going to go through with them in today's session. Today's session is about the tie downs and the securing of the wheelchair in the vehicle. So if we're ready, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Driving is something many take for granted. But when someone has altered ability, then driving or getting out and about in your own car can be challenging. Driving with a disability doesn't mean you have to drive an old clapped out car with farm-like machinery, and relying on a wheelchair doesn't mean waiting for hours and then being in the back of a maxi access cab getting car sick. The Drivable podcast is designed to introduce and explore driving aids for people with disabilities, vehicle modifications, the NDIS, research, medical guidelines, driving techniques, and much, much more. The Drivable podcast is to help you be informed and be in control of your own independence so you can experience freedom through driving safely and reliably. I'm Ali and with me is Brad and together we have over 30 years of experience in disability and driving. Enough of the intros, let's get into it. Okay, in this episode we're back talking with Amin Akbarian from the uh, International Standards Committees representing Australia. 
I mean, uh, tell us a little about yourself, where you're basically another reintroduction. Yep. Yeah, so hi, I'm uh, Amin Akbarian from uh, Mobility Engineering, uh, currently based in Sydney. Um, I'm the, I guess, CFO and uh, vehicle solutions specialist within the company. Um, my background of, I guess, education is mainly around uh, business finance and accounting, um, but also done a certificate three in automotive manufacturing. Um, so had, I guess, hands-on experience in the workshop as well, um, actually installing and uh, um, developing some of these products as well. Um, the industry experience, I've been in the disability industry for um, about 15 years around uh, product supply and um, solution prescription. And I'm an independent member on the Standards Australia Committee, ME067, uh, which uh, deals with um, the standard we're going to be talking with um, today and a couple other standards within the uh, vehicle disability area. Uh, expert member on the ISO um, WG6, so that's representing Standards Australia on the similar standards that we work with in, in ME067, and a focus group member for uh, Transport New South Wales um, Vehicles Modified for People with Disabilities. And on top of that work, I guess, fairly closely with the industry um, representation bodies, ATSA and ARADA, um, to provide advice uh, to the general public when um, uh, issues around vehicle um, modifications or, or questions are asked in that area. Um, so yeah, I've been, been in this industry for a, a little while now, showing I think by the, some of the gray hairs you might be able to see. Um, uh, At least you've got hair. Uh, At least you've got hair. If you, there's yeah. a bit of a shiny um, <laughs> reef, um, reflection on the screens for the people when they watch uh, Ellie and I on, uh, on YouTube, but uh, at least you've got some hair, even if it is a little bit gray. Hey mate, we, um, we did a, um, we did an interview with you a while ago. I just want to prompt people to go back to listen to that interview. Um, and that interview, we did an overview of the standards. And this time what we're doing is we're going to break that down. One, one, policy one procedure one um policy at a time yeah 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 so just to, and uh, forgive me if i'm going to be switching yeah. sorry i was just going to say I, I might switch a little bit between screens so that my note on one and the other one so yeah um, that's all good I might drift and just to reiterate what the aim is with this is as mentioned before there's four standards that are relevant to our industry um they're very important as an end user, as a therapist, as an industry professional modifier, whatever, it's very important that you're actually aware of these. They do have a strong effect. There has been sort of anecdotal comments in the past about things like standards aren't enforceable or standards aren't important and so on. Those things aren't actually true. All of these standards are all required. They're all very important. The thing is, is that this disability space pre-NDIS, as you've seen in a lot of our interviews, didn't really exist that much. So there wasn't much attention. So people were just doing things without complying with standards, thinking that it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't. And so, so when you're, this is why we're doing this because it's, this information is very important. We're seeing um, in the industry and on the field, I know I'm seeing as an engineer, left, right and center people that are not hitting the standards um, purely because they didn't know that they existed or they didn't realize how important they were or, or how they were all legally required and so on. So the idea with what we're doing here is we're going to follow, um, I guess, roughly the same format for each standard to keep it fairly consistent as well. 
So we've got about four or five different kind of key points we want to cover per standard. And then each episode will do that at the same points for the standards. So then it's some um, point of reference and comparison. And you can actually, I guess, use this podcast as a bit of a tool into the future as well. Um, so that's kind of the idea of what we're, we're trying to do moving forward. Um, and, and I guess we can kick it off with the first one, um, which is around, um, or well, the, one of the ones we're going to talk about now, uh, not necessarily the first one, but um, tying down the vehicle. So, um, or tie, tie downs in the vehicle. And this is probably one of the most prominent standards that is talked about in Australia, I guess, in, in, from the engineering space. So, um, so give us a little bit of information. What's the standard number and, and what's the name and what does it represent? Yeah. So, so yeah, this standard is uh, ASNZS 10542. Um, so 10542, I guess, is the main heading of the standard. And then there's point one um, and point two which is the uh, different areas for testing and the prescription. The name of the standard is technical systems and aids for people with disability, wheelchair tie down and occupant restraint systems, requirements and test methods. So, um, yeah. I mean, will you, can, for our listeners, can you put a, uh, provide us with a link of where they can actually find this? Now we know that they're not for free. I think you need to, uh, pay to download them, um, but it might be a worthwhile investment for an OT or for a vehicle modifier or even a client if they've got a vested interest in this area. Um, at the end of all of this, will you provide us a show note of where we can actually uh, get this from? Yeah, yeah. So they're all available from SAI Global, but I'll put a link um, there for um, for everyone so they'll be able to have a downloadable downloadable. No, and I actually want to just add a little bit more. To yeah. Um, a little bit more, which may turn into a bit of a rant, but um, because I guess we've had often industry professionals such as OTs ask us and want free copies of the standard. You're getting a couple of hundred bucks an hour, guys, and you're getting paid for this. It's your job to have a copy of that standard and buy it. So that's the requirement for your job. So you have to go and buy it. That's, that's, that's part of the job. You know? so, so asking for free copies of standards or not keeping a copy of the standard means you're not being competent at your job. You're, you, are, you are prescribing these things on behalf of NDIS. The requirement is that you have a copy of that and you go and buy a copy of that. So rant over, but yeah, it's, um, it's something that we get often requested. Oh, can't we just get a free copy? It's so expensive, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there going, but it's part of your job that you have to go buy the standards. So just go buy it. It's not that much money compared to what you earn. So, um, so yeah, that's um, my little my little one and two cents about. Yeah, and, it is, and it is it is a little bit important in regards to these standards, especially with sort of what Ali was mentioning a little bit earlier. But to just build on it slightly is it, it in the in this industry um, it happens I guess in a lot of industries. Um, not it's not um, just only our industry that it happens with, but uh, when it comes to product prescriptions and uh, I guess recommendations for how they should be um, fitted, whether it's within a vehicle or in the, in the outside world for handrails and so on, um, it has sometimes become an opinion-based conversation and not a facts-based com conversation. So uh, when it comes to standards, there you can't, I guess, take someone's word for it or an opinion. It has to be exactly as per what is written in the standard, uh, as we'll sort of um, cover it a little bit later in this uh, episode. 
especially with this one, it is mandatory to meet because it's cited within legislation. So it's not um, it's not a non-compulsory standard, um, but we'll cover that later. So it is very important to to have a copy of it for that reasons, just to make sure you've um, uh, cleared the air and know exactly what to comply with and what not to comply with. Um, right. So yeah, so this this standard covers um, two two areas within uh, the vehicle. One is uh, it's all to do with occupant safety, um, but one is to do with the restraints that will hold an occupant safely inside of the vehicle, and the other part is the restraints that's going to hold the wheelchair um, safely into the vehicle. So both both parts of uh, are entwined into this standard, and um, and they're sort of combined as what the industry sort of um, acronyms as WTORS, um, which is the wheelchair tie downs and occupant restraint systems. Fantastic. So um, this is all about securing somebody in the in the car seat. And that's what you're going to get into in this one. Um, and you've already mentioned that it's compulsory, but what are the main parts of this um, standard that we need to really consider and understand for, for moving forward? Yep. So, so when it comes to, um, I guess, especially the area that we're working with um, in, in predominantly within the NDIS, um, the key term used for, I guess, uh, a, lot of, a lot of these uh, solutions within the vehicle is assistive technology. Um, and the areas of assistive technology that this would relate directly to is the wheelchair itself. Um, and then the other part is the vehicle itself. So, so we're sort of Two, two separate parts and what we're trying to do is match them together to make sure we're going to have like a, a safe outcome for, for the occupant. Um, the areas of this standard um, which probably need to be highlighted the, the most, I'll, I'll probably split it into two though, like the wheelchair restraint part and then the, the occupant part and highlight sort of separately. So from the, the wheelchair side of things, um, what we want to know is the distances required, for example, for restraints. Um, there's, there's set requirements within the standard that tell you how far your restraints need to be um, apart from each other uh, to then fall in line with the tie down points of the wheelchair. There's also width requirements to then take into account multiple different sizes of wheelchairs um, and whether it's a manual chair, a power chair and so on. There's um, height requirements as well, um, uh, which will then come into the sort of occupant side of things. But yeah, from a wheelchair point of view, we want to know uh, weight of the chair. We want to know the tie down situation of that chair. Um, and we want to know the overall size of that chair. So um, I guess this is also uh, one good um, point to think about, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, with modifiers um, uh, or vehicle modifiers, if they're not asking you those three questions, um, then you should probably, uh, uh, I guess, con consider maybe looking at some other modifiers. Um, however, they're very, very important and must be uh, achieved to be able to get a safe, safe outcome. So you need to know the weight of the chair. The reason why you need to know the weight of the chair um, is in this standard, just meeting this standard, uh, which is the, standard test requirements you have to do are for 85 kilo restraints. So if the question isn't asked of how uh, heavy is this chair or what, how much does this chair weigh, 
there's a high chance that you could be overloading the restraints um, within the vehicle if they only just meet Australian standards. This is an area that's, I guess, being highlighted a lot right now within the industry and is becoming a, a bit of a talking point um, because a lot of people are going back and figuring out that there's a lot of chairs in vehicles with underrated um, restraints in there. So uh, very, very important to, to know the weight and match it then to the right um, weighted restraints. Yep. Can I just ask a question in regards to that? The, the tie downs themselves, is it uh, the 85 kilo restraint? This is a question that comes up with OTs. Is it is each restraint 85 kilos and you add that up to the total weight of the wheelchair or is it each restraint needs to be able to take the weight of a wheelchair? Because so let's take a, so, a power wheelchair as an example. A power wheelchair may be around 160 kilos, just the wheelchair itself. Let's say 150 for round numbers. Yeah. So the way that they're tested are in combination. Um, so they're not individually tested. So all four are hooked up to a surrogate wheelchair, um, crash tested, and then then they're rated. So it's a combination of all four. So that would be that 85 kilo um, rating. Now, that doesn't mean that there's only 85 kilo rating wheelchair restraints out there. It just means that just a standard wheelchair restraint is most likely gonna be 85 kilo rating. Um, if, you, if your wheelchair is heavier than 85 kilos, you will then need the appropriate wheelchair tie down that's going to um, match that weight. Now, there are um, multiple different manufacturers, I won't name sort of manufacturers, but there's multiple manufacturers of restraints that do um, go all the way from 80 kilos to 200 kilos now on the market. So they are available. Um, the area where we're seeing a little bit of, um, I guess, uh, um, uh, issues in the market is the uh, hooks of the restraints for the heavy duty shares are quite large because they need to withstand such, such a high force. And the tie down um, brackets on the wheelchairs to take those are not big enough to be able to fit those hooks. So maybe just a simple miscommunication between uh, wheelchair restraint uh, manufacturers and wheelchair manufacturers themselves. But that's what we're finding to be one issue when going to the heavy duty restraints at the moment. Uh, there are things that can be done um, uh, like using uh, strap loops, for example, uh, to to make up for that for that position, so that you've got another point to to pick it up from. Um, but that's one thing, I guess, just to highlight for for the larger chairs. Um, and this is why, I guess, the NDIS uh, protocol of trialing is is quite important as well to make sure that the chair you've got is going to match the restraints needed. So one of the questions we had was those strap loops. Do they need to be rated? I'm assuming that they would have to be rated up to 200 kilos if it's a 150 kilo wheelchair as well. Exactly. So uh, there are, um, yeah, local manuf uh, sorry, uh, local suppliers here that um, supply uh, wheelchair restraint manufacturers and uh, the loops that they send, they are rated. Um, sometimes it's, I know it's, it, 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 some, it sounds a bit ridiculous, but sometimes you might have to use two loops, for example, on the one point with the heavy duty restraint to be able to satisfy the 200 kilo um, requirement. That's something that I guess we have brought it up. I know um, wheelchair manufacturers are looking into that and working on uh, um, making uh, those transport points bigger. Um, some already have started introducing that, but that's gonna be just something that could be a bit of a, a, bit of a sticking point moving forward. 
Um, so the weight, so so weight is is extremely important. Um, at the moment, 200 kilos seems to be the the limit of what we're at in terms of a uh, securement inside of a vehicle. In general, once you're going over 200 kilos, um, there are other things that start coming into play with the vehicle's floor strength itself, um, and 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 so on and so forth. So 200 seems to be that cutoff mark at the moment. Just one more question from. Uh, the OTs that I'm uh, working with, does this count the weight of the client on the chair? So are we just talking the weight of the wheelchair only or are we talking about the person in or, or on the wheelchair as well when it comes to tying down the wheelchair only? So for the moment, I'll keep it simple. It is just the uh, weight of the chair and not the occupant. Um, but I guess a little bit of a hint of what's going to come into the future is uh, there are chairs now being developed with inbuilt seatbelts um, and they're becoming a, a testing nightmare, I know, for wheelchair um, manufacturers and wheelchair restraint manufacturers. But once that gets introduced, it's going to be a little bit different. So there's going to be a, a very different setup within the vehicle in terms of how uh, um, the restraints are rated, and that will then have to then start taking into account occupant and um, and and the mobility device weight. But at the current time, with um, with what we have uh, available within the standards, it's separating the occupant weight from the chair itself. So just to break that down for listeners um, uh, that are yeah. listening into this, we're talking about restraints for the wheelchair. And then you have a seatbelt on top of that, which we're going to get into in a little bit more detail later on. They're two separate items. So one, you tie down the wheelchair, and then you have a seatbelt to restrain the client in the wheelchair uh, to, to make sure that they're safe. So it's, it's an important mind concept uh, to get around. And a lot of people, in, a lot of questions that I get are around those from clients, but also from OTs as well, um, is that that seems to be one of the main mental mindsets that people need to get them self-sorted in their head to be able to figure out which part of the uh, standards are we actually looking at here. Yeah, I also um, on, on that, what I found was um, basically, uh, the, the words is, is hard, to, uh, hard to put together. Um, but from, from, I guess what's happening is when people are out there on the field, that I guess this really highlights that point that we've made in other videos and things like that, that the seatbelt comes off different points. It's not on the wheelchair. So, um, so I guess it's a big, I'm trying to bring it, the point I'm trying to get across is when you sit on the chair, that chair is already 200 kilos. And if I'm hundred kilos on top of that, and I'm relying on those tie down points, that then that's 300 kilos that's going to be putting the force on those tie down points, right? Um, and so it's very important, I guess, to visualize the thing that's holding the person in is a completely different system to what's holding the wheelchair. And we just have to understand that they're two different things um, because it, it is, yeah, like a common thing that I come across when I'm doing the engineering, um, when people don't really understand that difference. Um, and, and yeah, like if you, and also, I guess there's not really anything, typically when you look at those wheelchair bases, there's not really anything that's tying the seat down. Normally they're kind of just the base, right. Um, that's being tied down. So you do need something that ties the occupant in. And, and I guess I just wanted to highlight the fact that the thing that's tying the occupant in is a different system. Like it's 
bolted to different parts of the car. It's not connected to the wheelchair. It's not connected to the tie downs. It's not related to that stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's a whole different system. So, so yeah, I mean, so there, there, yeah, there are other things. Is, to, yeah, are there other things right. to talk about in regards to tying down the wheelchair? Yeah. So the other than weight, it's the physical size of the chair itself. So uh, again, I might actually maybe touch on the compulsory side a little bit when it when it comes to a standard being being compulsory, um, especially within the wheelchair uh, occupant and restraints area. There's a different allowance for private vehicles as there is for, for public vehicles. Um, as you can imagine, if you've got a private vehicle, it, you, you've got a set size um, occupant within there. So you can maybe lax some of the requirements so, and they'll, they'll still be transporting safely. In a public vehicle, we can't lax any requirements because we don't know who the next occupant's going to be that's going to be uh, entering this vehicle. So we've got to um, assume um, for the largest. So the other area, um, is, is, is size. Um, so mainly for private vehicles, we want to know what the overall wheelchair size is um, and the distances between the restraint tie-down points on the wheelchair. Uh, so then, that, then we can put the, the restraint points um, in the floor within um, the, the requirements of the standard. So that's where there is a little bit of leniency. So um, there is... Uh, the, the, the standard requirements is 1500 by 800. Um, so 1500 length. Sorry, sorry, I'll start again. Uh, standard requirements are 1300 length between restraint points. Um, so that's from front to back of the vehicle, 1300. 800 width, um, so from side to side of the vehicle, and then 1500 height once we get to the occupant restraints. So for the tie downs to achieve um, 50, 1300 length and 800 width, uh, it might not be suitable for a private vehicle that's got, you know, trying to transport other occupants and, and so on, um, especially if the wheelchair is not that big. Um, it could be, for example, uh, um, someone under 16 uh, in, a, in a chair still have a relatively low seated height and doesn't require as much room inside the vehicle to still meet all of the, the safe um, obligations. The one thing we do need to meet, so you can lax the, the width and the length to fit um, fit the chair size and fit everyone else into, into the vehicle. However, the part that cannot be relaxed, relaxed is the clear zone requirements. So the clear zone requirements is the amount of space forward and back of the head that you need for um, uh, head exclusion. So to be able to allow the, the body to move in an accident forward and backwards, uh, there is a set amount of space. And regardless of what you've put for the wheelchair um, position, they still need to be met. So what we find in general is probably um, uh, within a, this is, I guess, putting more the vehicle modifiers hat and the standards hat off is within the vehicle where we find 1100 length is sort of the minimum you'd probably ever be able to get anyway to be able to still take in count the, um, uh, the forward and backwards safe clear zones. Um, and it's width really that sometimes can be made um, less to be then allow for, for smaller chairs and, and um, smaller, more, more children in wheelchairs mainly in that area. So I might add a little bit more to that. Yep. yep. Sorry. Um, I was just going to add gonna a say, yeah, to that. Um, the tie downs in the vehicle, there's just mainly the, the two. So space requirements and weight. So to add to that, um, I guess from a vehicle certifier point of view, um, there regulation, there's 
there's a set of regulations for modifying vehicles called Vehicle Standards Bulletin. Um, and VSB number 14 um, is a set of guidelines on how to modify light vehicles, right? Now, VSB 14 um, doesn't have any requirements in, it doesn't have any, I guess, guidelines on wheelchairs. So then what VSB 14 does is it directs you over to the heavy vehicle requirements. And it says, as long as you meet those requirements, you can meet our requirements. So that's another standard called VSB 6, right? Now, in v so VSB 6 provides the guidelines on how to apply that standard to vehicles in Australia, right? If that makes sense. So that's where it all gets tied into legislation and that's what makes it legally required for it to be um, compliant to that standard in vehicles. It's through these vehicle standards bulletins, VSBs. Now VSB, what the VSB says in it, it actually says in there, if your um, vehicle is being used for more than one passenger, so that means if it is a public vehicle or it belongs to a community home or something like that, that it's not specifically just for one passenger, it's not a private vehicle, it's like it's more of a publicish type vehicle, then you must meet those full requirements of the dimensions that Amin's talking about, right? There is no leniency there. Um, so the leniency is actually written into the legislation. Then, but what it does say is if it's only for one person, so if it's a private vehicle and you're buying it, you know, in your Volkswagen, like the one in the background of my picture, you know, for the, for the person that's just for the one person in the family, then you don't have to meet those overall height requirements. You just have to meet the clear zone requirements of the occupant, which Amin is talking about. So that's the difference. And, it's, and, it's, and that's how it's legislated, I guess. And that's the wording. So if, and that's how I guess it's been related to public versus private and taxis and all that kind of stuff is that in the VSB, it specifically says more than one person um, do not, you do need to meet that height requirement and dimensional requirement. Only one person, you don't need to meet that. You just have to meet the uh, clear zone requirements. So I've got another question that came from a, a recent client of ours. Can you be, to fit more people into the van, can you be tied down sideways, not facing forward? Or can you be tied down facing out the rear of the van? I see you shaking your head. So the, the, that one... Yeah, no. Uh, so no, it can't be done. And that one sort of falls within the another standard, which I guess we'll cover as part of this series, um, which is the, the wheelchairs as a seat um, inside of a motor vehicle. Um, they've got very specific testing requirements for it, um, which is typically frontal. Um, I think introduced in, in the future, maybe uh, rearward, um, uh, rear impact as well. Um, but you, you pretty much cannot transport in a way that a wheelchair has not been tested. Um, mm -hmm. So if a wheelchair has only been tested in a frontal impact scenario, um, then you can only transport in that exact way, which is, which is forward facing. Um, but so further to be, that, uh, further to that, what also is the case is the VSB legislates this standard and the standard has got a requirement in there for you to provide instructions to the users on how to use it. And in that instruction, there's always a picture with an arrow pointing towards the front of the car. I'm pretty sure it's, it's very clear in that standard about the direction of the travel as well. So even if they crash tested rear-facing, unless they change that standard, you can't really travel rear-facing because I'm pretty sure the standard specifies forward-facing, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. We, we um, hope that the that, person that may or may not... We hope that the person that... Uh, yeah, I was just going to say like that may or may not vehicle. change in the future, but it's 
yeah, it's got to do with um, the, the legislation side of things and, and, and the, the crash testing of that wheelchair. In, in general, um, the, it's also, I guess, the way everything is designed. Everything has been designed uh, from the wheelchair restraints point of view um, and the wheelchair itself point of view, all, all at the moment for forward facing. Um, so until that uh, changes, which it, it could in the future, maybe, uh, we don't know, but um, until that changes, it'll all be always in a, in a forward facing scenario. Um, other than the legality, it's extremely unsafe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I really hope that the person that uh, sold that vehicle to the person that I'm thinking of is listening to this podcast, because hopefully that's a bit of an eye opener for them. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's something that shocked us when we saw it, when uh, when we actually look at the standards that are out there uh there are people that are oh yeah no you just come in sideways we'll get more people into the van and and it'll be okay it's not okay your your body and this is also is, i guess a good thing to highlight yeah i was, was going to say as well this is also good to highlight um i guess the necessity for having a standard like this as well um so so yourself i guess you know ot dealing with a client these questions will come up um on the field on like a everyday scenario um, and then for you to verify because not not all modifications that we encounter are, are modifications which are new that start from scratch right um, there'll be a lot of a, a hell of a lot of modifications out there where the client has just purchased a second-hand vehicle and comes to an OT for advice on vehicle modifications and and in that scenario without knowing this standard um, and uh, and knowing the particulars of it you I guess wouldn't be able to properly um, prescribe that that new situation um, for that client. Another thing to highlight there as well is um, the, the standards are a, I guess they're, they're the clear guideline of what needs to be accounted for um, uh, when designing a particular device or system with it that humans will interact with. In the in NDIS world, which most of us are operating in today, it is all about accountability and ensuring that you've ticked off all the relevant parts, I guess, of the community and regulation that the solution will, will apply with. Um, so covered here for the, and, and one other thing with, with standards is the compliance doesn't end the moment the vehicle has been handed over to the client um, or to the customer or to the carer or to the group home. Compliance is ongoing, um, especially for wheelchair tie downs and occupant restraints. Um, the for example, with the tie downs, the tie downs need to be at certain angles, certain distances where you've got, you know, um, a universal tracking within the vehicle. So if you are not understanding the particulars of the standard, um, you're unable to provide ongoing compliance for your clients as well, um, uh, moving moving throughout their life in the community. So it's um, it is very important to to know each area, if that's your area of expertise and sort of the area they're gonna be going into. Um, the second part I did wanna cover is then the occupant um, restraints part. So the occupant restraint is then what's gonna keep the occupant safe. So wheelchair, weight, overall size, then we can design the space and, and, uh, and, and figure out what standard requirements we need to um, meet for that. The occupant restraints, um, probably the more important part uh, where this is where we're, we're holding the, the life of the occupant um, in our hands and ensuring that it's been done in the correct way. Um, in this area, what we want to know is the seated wheelchair height. 
Um, so that's the seated height of the occupant once they're um, in the mobility device that they're going to be transporting in. We want to know the occupant's medical um, or carer needs when in transport and uh, if they require any behavioural support. Uh, we want to know who else is going to be um, using that vehicle. Is it going to be uh, just themselves uh, or do they have multiple mobility devices? Do they have a manual chair and a power chair and they need to um, be transported in both? Um, and, uh, and lastly, which is more, I guess, not the occupant side, is just travel environment. Um, but yeah, why we want to know those points is to be able to then correctly fit the occupant restraint um, in the right position of the vehicle and also make sure it's going to be suitable for that occupant. In this area, um, I guess that we're working with, with um, uh, wheelchair transport, uh, not everyone's needs is the same. Uh, some people might have very, very high medical needs that uh, due to the way things are um, installed into their bodies, um, they might require the seatbelt to be fitted in a different way or possibly um, might not be able to wear a seatbelt um, in, the, in the legal standards compliant way. Um, so we need to know that so then we can design it so that it, it is as safe as possible still for that person, but then taking into account um, all of their medical needs while, um, while in transport. Um, behavioural support is also uh, quite important. Uh, as we know, vehicle safety relies on um, the restraints working. Uh, so if there is the ability for someone due to whatever behavior it is for the seatbelt to either incorrectly be fitting on that person or to be removed by that person during transport, um, then other things need to be also um, done within the vehicle to ensure, ensure the safety of that person. So uh, overall height um, when seated in the wheelchair and, uh, and medical needs um, when in transport, and that'll then give us the uh, ability to figure out how we're going to meet the standard for the seatbelts and uh, what the combination is, is going to look like um, for that person. So what are some of the standards that you, so you, we've got the height, we've got the size of the person, we've got their medical needs. What are some of the things that need to be considered in regards to the vehicle themselves in regards to installing these uh, restraints or seatbelts for the client? So when we're looking at the, the vehicle itself, um, we want to know what other configurations this vehicle could be used for so that we can take that into consideration when we're, I guess, figuring out this wheelchair position. For example, it could be a vehicle that's used uh, not always for wheelchair transport, it's dual purpose. It could be a, a, people, a people mover, for example, right? Um, and you've got side fold seats and wheelchair can be there at times, seating can be there at times instead, um, able occupant seating. Uh, other things we want to look out for in general, I guess if we've uh, received a vehicle, um, one, one important thing for restraints and tie downs in general is just the overall quality of the vehicle. So if it's a secondhand or older vehicle, um, the engineer would typically look at it. And if due to the um, the nature of it, you know, it might be high rust or, you know, um, a lot of damage done to the floor. The engineer might uh, also refuse that vehicle from having those restraints installed until either repairs are done or, or other work. Um, but mainly it's, uh, it's just to do with that, that spacing that we want um, 
the 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 wheelchair occupant to be seated inside of the vehicle. Well, actually, not what we want. What where I guess the thing I always like to ask is what where do they want to be seated inside of the vehicle, um, and and not for us really saying this is where you can sit because um, there's a lot of options, um, a lot of places in the vehicle that can be seated seated, um, and further to the front is usually the the safest um, position. I do have, I guess, a list of six things which I recommend people um, for OTs to, uh, well, not just OTs, but um, uh, anyone within working within this standard space um, or wheelchair prescription space or even wheelchair modifiers. Um, the six things you sort of want to um, know about to cover this standard is one, overall size of the wheelchair, two, overall weight of the wheelchair, uh, three, the seated height of the occupant when in the wheelchair. Four, occupant medical carer needs when in transport or behavioural support. Five, who else is going to be using the vehicle and the maximum amount of passengers that's going to be required. And six, the transport environment. So where you're going to be driving this vehicle on your on your day to day environment. If you've answered, if you've asked those six questions. Um, the modifier, uh, well, typically the modifier would be the one asking these questions, I guess, when they're, when they're quoting something up for you. Um, but these are the six areas that if you've covered those, you should then um, be left with a suitable and safe transport um, solution. Very good. I've got one more question because sometimes that's, that sounds excellent for prescribing a new van. So when we're looking at a, uh, yeah, building a new van for, from scratch to meet somebody's needs, when we look at some of maybe the imported vans that are on the markets, may uh, first registered in an overseas country such as Japan or so forth, and they're imported as a, as a vehicle with restraints for both the wheelchair and seatbelts as well for the occupant in the van, what are some of the, what should some of the, key things that an occupational therapist should look at when prescribing the van? I know that well, I haven't prepared you for this question, but it popped into my head just then. <laughs> but what should an OT be going into the assessment looking for to see if that van is appropriate for the client uh, in the back of a El Grande or whatever so, it might yeah, be? So, yeah, so to answer that, what I'd first do which will pretty much um, give the give the, the skeleton for answering the question is the compulsory uh, whether it's compulsory to meet this standard and other regulations that also apply because then that'll then tie in and sort of I guess close the, the imported loophole that, that exists I know in the market um, so the first thing is is it compulsory to meet this standard um, as Ali mentioned earlier it's it's cited within the VSV standards so um, it's it's within legislation, so it it is then it must be met. So it is compulsory to met, uh, meet meet this standard. Sorry, there are certain areas which are highlighted that can be laxed. Now those areas that can be laxed are purely size wise areas. No load or um, testing areas can be laxed. It's purely just the size, um, length and width and height of where that area is going to, where the wheelchair occupant is going to be sitting, that can be laxed. No other areas of the standard can be, can be changed. All other areas must be met. Um, is there any other regulations that apply? There are also the Australian, so when a vehicle is modified, however that may be, 
the vehicle in its totality must still fully meet. And one other thing, so vehicle modified, whether it's imported or local does not make a difference. So um, imported vehicle or a locally manufactured vehicle or a vehicle that's um, full volume available, such as just like a Toyota Camry, um, they must meet no matter how they are in totality the regulations of the Australian design rules, which are the ADRs and the Road Vehicle Standards Act. Um, and once they're on the roads, they need to be fully compliant with the road rules legislation, road rules legislation as well. So there's sort of like five tiers of regulation that, um, that need to be met uh, for, for, for a vehicle to, to be on the roads. And then the standards, if they're cited within any of these, then become compulsory. So a lot of the now overlapping that onto the, the, the Japanese um, import vehicles. Um, the one thing which, uh, which you mentioned uh, is, is slightly incorrect in that they're not being imported as um, wheelchair occupant vehicles. They may look that way um, and that's how they've been designed in Japan, but they're being imported under a different category. Um, so when they get imported, because they're not being imported as a uh, wheelchair occupant vehicle, they do not need to meet those standards once they get imported. Then something different happens. Then once it gets into the hand of a, um, a, a, a car dealer, um, then they look at the vehicle and go, oh, well, look, this has a wheelchair um, space in it. I can sell this to someone that requires um, a wheelchair transport. And then they then go and on sell it onto, onto someone that requires wheelchair transport. That person then uses it for transport. And that is where then the incorrect and the illegal practice, I guess, happens. Um, because somebody is then being, well, there's two parts of it, which is which one of those opinion, I'm not a lawyer, but one of them, I'm pretty sure it's illegal to, to false advertise something to someone and sell something to someone that it's not. So if somebody is being sold a vehicle that they've been told is a compliant wheelchair access vehicle, but it does not meet this standard, for example, for wheelchair restraints, and it does, and the restraints do not have this standard written on it, um, then that's technically in my mind illegal because you're sort of um, going against the um, ACCC. Um, but that's something maybe for the, the clients and, and lawyers to get involved with. That's just my personal opinion and advice. Um, now, so it must meet those standards regardless. And sometimes some people do uh, fit Australian standard restraints before they get sold, um, but they must be fitted still with Australian standard restraints for it to be legally used in the, in, on Australian roads um, with, a, with a wheelchair occupant. So if you have received the vehicle and you've been sold the vehicle that, was, that you've been told is suitable for wheelchair access, um, and it doesn't have Australian standard restraints, the first point of call I always tell everyone is go back to who sold it to you and, um, and A, ask them to either rectify the situation or provide you a refund because they've sold you something that's not a wheelchair access vehicle that's Australian roads compliant. Um, uh, B, which uh, is usually what happens in the market is, um, uh, yeah, go and uh, consult with your, um, your local vehicle modifier and, uh, and, and ask for um, the Australian restraints to, to be uh, retrofitted to, to that vehicle. It's something that happens quite common in the industry is we'll, we'll get a Japanese import vehicle, they'll have the restraints in there, remove those restraints, refit with Australian standard restraints um, and uh, refit a three point seatbelt and then it becomes uh, 
compliant to the standard. So the, I guess the, the thing is, is that the vehicles, they can be used as long as they are retrofitted with Australian standard restraints. As they are imported from factory, um, from Japan here, they are non-compliant if they've been used for wheelchair transport. All right, so... I'll, I'm just... gonna add a little bit more to that. Um, I'm, and do a self plug. I've got about three or four Q and A videos on um, YouTube, on our YouTube, just on this very topic. Yep. Um, I'll maybe give a very, very simple version of what Amin said for OTs to look out for. Um, the vehicle that comes from Japan is a modified vehicle. It's not a factory vehicle. It's still modified in Japan, right? It's got Toyota written on it, but it's still a modified vehicle. All modified vehicles must be certified. All modified vehicles must be certified. If you have a Japanese import vehicle without a certificate for the, for the tie downs, then you can't use them because it's a modified vehicle that doesn't have a certificate for the tie downs, very simple. So, so and then if there is a certificate for the tie downs, then what Amin said would have happened where they would have had new, new um, retractors put in. They would have had new, like it would have had an engineer assess it against the Australian standards. And then whatever needed to be changed in that car would have been changed and certified. But the big misconception is that people think these are some kind of glorious uh, immaculate factory vehicle. They're not, they're a modified vehicle that was modified in Japan. Like it's, 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 if that makes sense. So, so the modification still needs to be certified. Um, and that's, that's the really big important thing. So, to make the job of the OT easy, um, what do they look out for? The certificate and the paperwork. Um, and if it's not there, then then I guess to, to build on what Amin was saying, if there's not a certificate there, and then you go and look at the car and all you see is Japanese stuff and nothing Australian um, that meets Australian standards, then that, that's a couple of red flags for you right there that something's majorly wrong, you know? Is the compliance plate the little, little tag that is... Um punched into the inside of a door normally yeah is that enough to go by no 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 that 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 verifies to you that it's a compliant car in australia um but that's i think that that's the big misconception that mm. there is in the market because that car comes in as a toyota well cab right um and WellCab is the Japanese word that they use for wheelchair access vehicles. Like we've got WAV over here, they call it WellCab. That's just what it is. For some odd reason, the culture here seems to be that people think WellCab is to do with like a model um, or something like that, but it's more like marketing. Uh, um, and so these things come in as a WellCab. Um, and so people think it's a factory like, um, you know, item, but they're not, they're, they're modified. They're like aftermarket products that go into them. Um, to these things um, they're still a modified vehicle so that's that's the big misconception the plate just says um, it's a tarago for example that can be used but it doesn't talk about the wheelchair access part mm -hmm. yeah and those certificates should be with the logbook and and service yeah. book yeah. yeah yeah and in some states the the state authority issues the certificate but either way, um, you have to have some authority figure from your state government that represents the road um, authorities, give you some kind of authority to use that device. And it's in paper and it's always attached to the rego or something like that. Yeah, excellent yeah, advice. And that's what I was also gonna mention with the areas of the areas of the standard, which um, I guess throughout this podcast that I've said can, can be uh, relaxed. 
Um, for those, it is always best to consult with your local engineering certifier or state transport authority, depending on the state where you are, where the certifiers aren't, to confirm prior to going ahead with the conversion um, or, or for going ahead with that, with that scenario in the vehicle. Um, because, because uh, yeah, it also does um, what, what one state might uh, relax or interpret as relaxed, another state might not. Um, which uh, I guess ourselves from the um, uh, non-standards and vehicle modifier hat we put on, put on we, we have come across um, issues like that um, from state to state. So it is very important, um, I guess, you know, even us, you know, we're, we're uh, <laughs> engineers, um, we've got engineers within and, uh, and, and we still um, get into those same, same issues. So always consult with the, the relevant uh, engineer that's suitable for that state. Um, yeah. And each state has, their, has a different way of doing it. So if the OT has checked off those things and it looks like it's got certificates uh, to meet engineering requirements, or maybe it's a, um, an Australian designed modification to start off with and it met all of those type of things and they're buying a second hand car, what should the OT look out for in regards to the, to the seatbelt and matching matching the client to the space. Is there anything from an engineer's point of view that we really need, and these um, standards, that we really should be considering for something that has been uh, installed correctly, but also using it now correctly into the future? The things that I'm kind of thinking about so, is where the three-point harness, the this, um, lap sash seatbelt, should actually be placed on the client, just to give a bit of reference. Yeah. So, um, so what I'd say is, firstly, before going into like the particulars, firstly, the same six things which I mentioned mm -hmm. would apply still for second-hand vehicles. So, new or second-hand, you should always be going through the exact same um, methodology. So, overall size of the chair, because um, now you you're a, you're a, a, a different occupant to what that private vehicle was originally designed for if it wasn't sold to you originally. Um, so, you need to get then going to make sure it's going to work for all of what you have. Um, so the same thing, clear zone uh, requirements may change. Uh, if your uh, wheelchair is slightly different, you know, those could change. As a um, quick tip for uh, occupant um, restraints into the vehicle. So say we've got the, the wheelchair part sorted. It's a second-hand vehicle. We've, we've set the wheelchair in. We know that the, um, it fits within the restraint points. It's tied down correctly. Then we want to put the occupant um, belt on. Uh, occupant belt needs to sit um, on the hard bony part of the shoulder. Um, so I might just stand up here a little bit. So um, for the OTs or people who are out there on your clavicle, on the on the on your collarbone. Yep. Yep. And closer to where your neck meets your shoulder than to uh, sorry, your neck neck meets your collar than when than to the side of your shoulder. Again, here we're sort of taking the strongest um, part. And I guess the way I like to explain it is sort of you're making a choice on if you do get into an accident, what part do you want to break? Do you want it? Do you want it? Do you want to break? Something's going to break. So do you want it to break this part, your neck, or do you want it to be shoulder, ribs, and other things combined coming into each other? Um, I'm, I'm not a doctor myself, but I, I'm pretty sure this is the, this is the hardest um, and strongest part in that area. Um, and other than that, it's a part that if it does break, um, repairing it is uh, a bit easier than other, repairing other parts that, um, that can break. So that's, that's usually how I want to ex explain it. So hard bony part of the shoulder, 
closest to the neck, but not, not on the neck, evenly across the body and then from hip to hip, going on the front part of your, your pelvic bone. Um, so uh, I guess, you know, me, maybe I can use the COVID weight excuse at the moment. You know, I got a bit of, bit of extra COVID weight on. So what I want to do when I get into a car is I want to lift my belly up and I want to put the seatbelt underneath my belly so that it's on the hard bony part of my body and it's not over my belly. Um, the reason again is you're, you're choosing what do you, what do you want to damage in the case of an accident above your pelvic bone and below your ribs is no protection at all. And it's, uh, um, I guess, quite a lot of vital organs as well, which are there. So we don't want something ripping straight into the, that area. Uh, we want it to go across the hard bony parts of our bodies. Um, so yeah, so from shoulder, evenly across the body, hip to hip and across the front of the, the pelvic bone. And it's yeah. uh, important to highlight because uh, it's very common for wheelchair occupants um, to be overweight and have that extra belly fat. So. Um, so yeah, it's just I guess be vigilant around that. The the other thing about it's that also in wheelchairs. Is, sorry, I was just going to say also with wheelchairs, the, the arm armrests um, of the wheelchairs uh, are sometimes try to get into the way, um, and people will instead of trying to feed it the right way or removing armrests, they'll put it over the armrests. And again, if that armrest height typically will be somewhere. Yep exactly in that area so it's not not the area at all where the seatbelt needs to sit um it's also uh, other than being unsafe and over there as well is you're now the there's a there's a term i guess with with, with belts inside a vehicle called submarining um now a seat belt is designed to if it's fitted in the way that i i mentioned from bone to hip to hip um it is an automatic anti-submarining device. Because of the shape and the contour of your body and the shape of the seat um, of the vehicle uh, and the seat belt, it'll automatically keep you in a position as long as um, uh, you've got the um, upper body um, strength to stop you from sliding out from underneath it. Now, if that belt is sitting all the way up near your chest or just, just um, under your ribs, uh, that submarining function of the belt also gets removed. So you're much more likely to slip underneath the belt um, and then it's going to ride up and cause then a, a, a choking hazard as well. So, um, so we, it, it must always be in, in that position um, to make sure that the seatbelt is effectively and safely doing what it needs to do. And some older um, vans have just got, especially here in South Australia, just the lap belt. Like, like the 1970s cars in the back seat where it just had the lap belt only, sometimes wheelchair uh, accessible vans have just got a lap belt only. Where does that sit with the current re uh, regulations? Non-compliant. Yeah, so, yeah. I knew the answer. So I guess it's, 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 it's a bit, well, it's also, I guess there, there's a little bit gray. Uh, it depends on when the restraints were fitted to the vehicle and the age of the vehicle. So it's sort of, um, for example, say it's a, it's a 20 year old wheelchair access vehicle um, and that's how it's been designed then and nothing's changed till now. Put aside the fact that the restraints are now 10 years old and the manufacturers sort of wipe liability on it. But let's just say everything's pristine and perfect restraints inside of the vehicle. Um, legally, the, the, the car can be lap belt compliant. Now, the, the, the question, well, there's, there's two things I guess I always, always ask is um, uh, one is 
how does everyone in a tra in a vehicle transport today? Um, how does a every able-bodied occupant in a vehicle transport today? Um, if you are a uh, this is gonna I'm gonna try and I guess say this in a way that's um, as sensitive as possible, but if you're in the community and you're a minority and how things are happening to you are different to the majority, um, question why that is, you know, because the majority of people transporting in a vehicle are able-bodied and they have a three-point retractable seatbelt. The minority of people transporting in a vehicle are wheelchair accessible um, occupants and typically have been left with a lap-only belt. Um, why that's been the case like that's a there's, there's, there's a lot of discrimination arguments we can sort of um, bring about here um, but you want to have a look at how the majority are being transported because that is what they are that that is the how regulations and standards and everything have been designed for um, and if what you are how you are being transported is different question it and make sure that it changes to how everybody else is is transported inside of the vehicle because it is, um, it is, yeah, that is like the part, I guess, which I'm, I, irks me the most is um, the, the question always arises around wheelchair transport. Um, uh, the, the question, why is no able-bodied occupant asking to be transported in a lap only belt inside of a vehicle? Um, that's, that's, that's the question I always wanna ask uh, because it's not safe. Um, and, and somehow, People over the years have uh, interpreted it to be a gray area. It, when I've read the laws, it never has been a gray area um, uh, because an occupant is an occupant inside of the vehicle. Whether you're in a wheelchair or not, you're still an occupant inside of the vehicle. So you must meet all the occupant safety um, needs inside of the vehicle. And the other thing is just Google a video. If you don't um, want to hear me ramble on anymore about it, just Google uh, wheelchair crash testing video and have a look at the difference between a lap only and lap sash. And I'm pretty sure you'll make your decision pretty quickly as to um, how you're going to be prescribing. Yeah, I think we'll put a, I think we'll put a link to that uh, video that you show in, in the show notes to this one. And, and if you're interested in seeing that video, uh, go to the show notes, press the link and um, yeah, just see what forces are applied to a body that comes to uh, a very abrupt stop. Uh, when they're in a wheelchair, and look at the, look at some of the uh, differences between uh, the restraints that we've been talking about in uh, in this podcast episode. What I think we'll do is uh, leave it on that note. I think that is a fantastic place to uh, finish up there uh, for today. I, I really want to, um, from me personally, uh, asking all my OT questions. I, I really want to thank you, Amin, for helping us understand that uh, side of it all. I'm sure there's a lot of OTs that have learned something today. Um, so from me personally, thank you very much for sharing all of that information. All good. Thanks very much, Amin. So for listeners... Right. When, thank you guys for having me. For listeners, we're not going to do a summary for this episode because I think there's enough detail in this episode as there actually is from a technical point of view. So we, we're not going to go into a uh, Ali and Brad breakdown and the nitty gritties for this episode. What we are going to do is invite Amin back to talk about the other three standards that we mentioned at the start of this podcast. And what I'm going to also encourage uh, people to do is to go back 
and listen to the original interview that we did with Amin. Uh, and we overviewed the policies back then. We've repeated some of that information today, but we're also uh, getting into the details in this episode. So uh, again, a huge thank you. Thank you. Uh, all good. Thank you guys very much for having me. Yeah, no worries. And as we say in every episode, if you've got any queries about what you can do and we'll walk what will work for your best scenario, make sure that you get in contact with your local OT or mobility dealer and set yourself up with a trial because trials really do put you in the driver's seat. And as we've found with this one, make sure they know the standards. That's it. All right, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Drive Able podcast with Brad Williams and Ali Akbarian. If you like what you've heard, make sure you like, rate, and subscribe. It really does make a massive difference. If you or anyone you know would like to share a story about driving with a disability, or you would like to get in contact, find the show notes, or find the resources mentioned in this episode, you can find us on Facebook. Just search at Drive Able Podcast for more information.